If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 15 this afternoon. In case you've forgotten, uh, the book of Acts is not just an account of the growth of Christianity from a small Jewish sect into a faith that was spreading to the ends of the earth. It is that, but it's also an invitation to us here in this day and age to join in on what God was doing then and continues to do, to join in on this never-stopping, ever-increasing, spirit-empowered spread of the good word of Jesus to all people for the glory of God. And if we're going to be a part of that, if we're going to join in on what God is doing through the spread of the good word about Jesus, then we need to really understand just how revolutionary the message of Christianity is. Time and familiarity has a way of causing us to forget just how profound some things are. I was thinking about moments in history that are profound, that the effects are far-reaching, but we've just sort of, the world we live in now assumes these things and they're kind of mundane to us. What comes to your mind when you think about significant, far-reaching events in history? Does anything pop in your head? What comes in your mind? Give me a couple. We'll go interactive this, this afternoon. Okay, Neil Armstrong landing on the moon. That's pretty significant, right? And we, now we just assume that that can happen. There you go. The discovery of electricity has changed our lives a lot. We know that, especially when we don't have it anymore. Give me one more and then I'll give you mine. The internet. Oh, Lito, what a great example. Was there a time without the internet? Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't feel like it, right? Well, you think about that. So you think about um, inventions and achievements. So things like that you can fly a plane across the ocean now. Um, things like the invention of the printing press, revolutionary in the world. Uh, this is Black History Month. And, and we might think, you know, there's a long way to go, but we might think about the abolition of slavery. We might think about Rosa Parks not giving up her seat on the bus or that Jackie Robinson was the first African-American baseball player to step into the batter's box. That's a big deal, and now it's just sort of assumed that there's somewhat some sort of equality within sports and within these other areas. Uh, we could think about wars and tragedy and how they have changed the world. Think about the dropping of two atomic bombs in Japan and the end of World War II, how it was an amazing thing and yet also such a sad thing. Think about the attacks of September 11th and how those have shaped our lives, even just in the small ways that we, have, that we go to the airport. It's now assumed that it's gonna take a lot longer, uh, that there's so many small things, that the fear that comes with that too. But these moments and so many others, they, they change the world, but we become used to them we become used to the way that the world is now that we forget how significant they are. And that can also be true for the message of the gospel, for the, the, the power and the, the revolutionary nature of the message of the gospel, what it was then and what it continues to be now. We can forget that, that when we rightly understand it, the message of the gospel turns the world and turns our lives upside down. And so Acts is this wonderful reminder that that's what the gospel does when it's rightly preached, when it's rightly understood, and when it's received in the lives of people. This is not history that cannot be 
fully repeated. There are some things unique to Acts, but at the same time, the power of the gospel to change lives is the same. So we're in the middle of, of Paul's second missionary journey. I, I remembered my map. There you go. And some of you kids got a map. I think I heard someone say, can I color it? You sure can. That's why it's there to color if, if you got a map. But here's this. It's a little bit hard to see probably. Um, but if you look down here where it says starting point, we started in Antioch on the second missionary journey. And then Paul went in reverse order back through Galatia. You remember they came up there in, in, in Lycia area and went through the area of Galatia on the first missionary journey. But here in the second, he's going back through by land. Uh, last week, we saw that they weren't sure where they were supposed to go, were prevented from going into Asia, prevented from going into Bithynia, ended up in Troas, where, there, where Paul has a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over here. And that's how they ended up going across the Aegean Sea and landing in Philippi. And we saw uh, last week, if you can see Philippi up there in Macedonia, uh, we were in Philippi, and um, we, we saw last week the, that God established this church made up of Lydia, who was a rich single businesswoman, made up of a slave girl who was formerly possessed by a demon, and made up of a Roman jailer, among many others. Um, so you can see Philippi, and we're going to travel, if you look at the map, to Thessalonica, we're going to go with the brothers to Thessalonica where they were there for at least three weeks and then they moved on to Berea. Um, that's all we're going to cover today, but just kind of take a note while this is up there. From Berea, they're going to leave because of persecution. They're going to land eventually in Athens. Um, Paul's going to get to Athens, but Silas and Timothy are going to stay back in Berea a little bit longer and they'll rejoin Paul in Corinth according to Acts 18.5. And at that point, we're on the back half of the journey. Um, Luke lets us know that there in Sencrea, something very significant happens, which is that Paul gets a haircut. We'll talk about that. It, it's in the text, just so you know. Uh, Paul has a haircut there in Sencrea. He makes a brief visit to Ephesus. He's going to come back there on the third missionary journey. And then they set sail down here to Caesarea. They're going to see the church in Jerusalem and then head back up into Antioch. So... That's the second missionary journey. As you think about the scope of that journey, we're, we're told so little when you really think about it. Of all that must have happened on that journey, what Luke tells us is actually very small. Think about all that Paul and his companions faced and encountered and experienced on that trip. All the amazing things, all the scary things. I started thinking too, there must have been really funny things that happened too. If you're together with someone for a while and taking trips like that, there's just some funny stuff. And so you think about this, the way they traveled um, and all the amazing things that they saw, the scary things that they saw. And maybe if you've never pictured Paul and Silas laughing about some mistake that they made or, or, or something that happened on their journey, I think that's a good image to have, that these were real guys and they were on this long trip together. So there's a lot that we don't know about what happened. But as we've said before, Luke, by the guidance of the Spirit, has carefully chosen these particular stories that we have in the book of Acts to, so that, that this can be preserved. And these are for a purpose. And so as we look at the pieces of the story that are, that are here in the book of Acts, we want to ask, why does Luke include these stories? Why does he talk about these 
people? Why does he talk about these cities? And why, uh, why are Thessalonica and Berea right here? Other than their geographical closeness, what about these two accounts causes Luke to bring out specific things that were happening in Thessalonica and Berea? As we look at this, we're gonna see a number of things happening, but at least in part, I think what the Spirit wants us to show us when we look at, at Thessalonica and Berea in particular, he wants to show us what it looks like when people reject the word and what it looks like when people receive the word. Um, Thessalonica and Berea are in many ways a lesson in contrast, specifically about people, how people heard and responded to the good news about Jesus. So when I was trying to think of a big idea, what came to my mind was James 1.21. So rather than come up with my own, I just stole it from James, okay? So James 1.21 in the Good News Translation, this is what that verse says. It says, submit to God and accept the word that he plants in your hearts, which is able to save you. That's gonna be our, that'll serve as our big idea for this sermon. Submit to God and accept the word that he plants in your hearts, which is able to save you. That's James 121. As we think about what the word is and what the gospel is, I just started thinking about the power of the gospel and that all of the deep desires and the longings that are in our hearts are met when we submit to God and walk in his ways. All the power that we have, all the power that we, that we want to change and to, to grow, to please God, is rooted in submitting to God and by the Spirit following his word. All the, the joy, all the satisfaction, all the, the pleasure that we are seeking is found when we submit to Jesus and let his word bear fruit in our lives. So, this passage is calling us to submit to God and accept the word that he plants in your hearts, which is able to save you. With that in mind, let's read Acts 17, starting in verse one, and I'll read through 15. Acts 17, beginning in verse one. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, and as was his custom, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness 
examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. In verse 1, Paul and his, his crew arrive from Philippi. It was a 100-mile journey from there to Thessalonica. Uh, they passed through a couple cities that you see there in, in verse 1. And surely we can imagine that, that Paul and Silas still bore on their bodies the marks of the beatings with the rods that they had received not many days prior. And if they were like me, then they might have been scared that their already bruised bodies were about to be beaten again if they were going to open their mouths and preach the gospel. The image that comes to my mind is of a, a baseball player who in his previous at bat was hit by a pitch coming 96 miles an hour. And the next time he steps into the batter's box, he's going to be a little bit hesitant to crowd the plate. But what's interesting here is that by God's grace, that's not Paul and Silas. In the first letter to the Thessalonians, he's writing to this church that he visits. In Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, this is what Paul says. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much affliction. What a good word. I just read that and I said, man, I want to be like Paul. I want to be like Silas, bold, courageous, undaunted. And so armed with this, this courage that God had given them, they got right back in the game and they were swinging for the fences as Paul always did. They entered Thessalonica, they found the synagogue, which was the custom, and for three Sabbaths we're told that Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. He reasoned with them. I love that idea. Hear this then, accepting the, the word that God plants in our hearts. When we talk about that, submitting to God and accepting the word that he plants in our hearts, that doesn't mean unplugging your brain and not using your reason. As we talk to people about the good news about Jesus, or as you reflect on the good news about Jesus, remember that we're not asked to believe in a truth that defies reason, that is irrational. There are aspects of the gospel and there are parts of the Christian faith that are, that are difficult to comprehend. There are parts of the scriptures that press hard, especially on our 21st century Western understanding of the world, not to mention our prideful, sinful nature that just wants to reject the truth of God. And, and there is mystery in God's word. But even the presence of mystery is reasonable. Wouldn't it be irrational to think that created beings could fully grasp the characteristics and the ways of their creator. That would be irrational. I mean, it, it's rational to think, I'm not gonna understand God completely or his ways. In fact, we can contend that Christianity is the most reasonable and rational system of belief in the world. 
And I can say that because it's made by the creator of the world, and so it's going to explain his creation best. C.S. Lewis once said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, meaning I see the sun, but because by it, I see everything else. By my belief in Christianity, everything else makes sense. Tim Keller, a great fan of C.S. Lewis, comments on that in this book called The Reason for God. I'd commend it to you, really helpful. He says this about that quote, imagine trying to look directly at the sun in order to learn about it. Got that picture? Kids, you ever try to do that? Look directly at the sun? Don't do it. Imagine trying to look directly at the sun in order to learn about it. You can't do it. It will burn out your retinas, ruining your capacity to take it in. A far better way to learn about the existence, power, and quality of the sun is to look at the world it shows you, to recognize how it sustains everything you see and enables you to see it. Here then we have a way forward. We should not try to look into the sun, as it were, demanding irrefutable proofs for God. Instead, we should look at what the sun shows us. Which account of the world has the most explanatory power to make sense of what we see in the world and in ourselves? We have a sense that the world is not the way it, should, it ought to be. We have a sense that we are very flawed and yet very great. We have a longing for love and beauty that nothing in this world can fulfill. We have a deep need to know meaning and purpose. Which worldview best accounts for these things? Christians do not claim that their faith gives them omniscience or absolute knowledge of reality. Only God has that. But they believe that the Christian account of things, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, makes the most sense of the world. I ask you to put on Christianity like a pair of spectacles and look at the world with it. See what power it has to explain what we know and see. I love that. It, Christianity makes the most sense of the world as we know it and of what's stirring around in our hearts. It's a reasonable faith. So Paul is reasoning in the synagogue. I imagine he pointed to the evidence in the world. He's going to do more of that in Athens. But he's in a synagogue here. So not only does he point to the evidence in the world around him, but he looks at the scriptures. He opens up what would have meant most to the Jewish people gathered there. And he takes the Old Testament writings and he shows that they affirm the good news about Jesus that he is proclaiming to them. What's the good news that Paul is proclaiming? It's the gospel, of course, but let me give you the two components, the two parts that I think come out here in Acts 17 of what Paul is proclaiming and what the church continues to proclaim as the gospel. First, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Now, just like the invention of the printing press, that can sound really dull and not life-changing, but this is amazing and revolutionary. Jesus is the Christ. We see this in verse three is what he says. He says, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Meaning he's the long awaited savior of the Jewish people in particular and he's the savior of the whole world that God has sent. He's the one promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15 who would crush the head of Satan and destroy sin and restore the world to a place of justice and mercy. But what makes Paul's claim so shocking and why it would take three Sabbaths to reason with the Jews in the synagogue about this 
and why some of them resorted to violence and drove him out of town is found in the first part of verse three. It says that as Paul's reasoning with them, what's he doing? He's explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, for the Messiah, Jesus, to suffer and to rise from the dead. What was so revolutionary to the ears of these Jewish leaders and and the people in the synagogue was the argument that Jesus could be the Messiah, not in spite of the fact that he had been condemned and crucified, but because of it. What was almost as hard to accept to them was also the fact that he had died and that he rose from the dead. That struggle is nothing new, is it? The struggle was same for the disciples. Jesus told them flat out, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. Did they believe him? No. Not until afterwards, not until the, Jesus rose from the dead. They had to be convinced, and they had to be convinced from the scriptures. It, there's a great parallel passage to this. You've probably already thought of it. It's Luke as well. And you, Luke uses similar words to describe what Jesus said to the men on the road to Emmaus. These guys are explaining to Jesus who has hidden his identity from them uh, and and are confused about recent events. They're confused about about the fact that Jesus has died. They're confused that now some women are saying that he rose from the dead and they're explaining all this to Jesus and Jesus responds to them in Luke 24, 25 and 26 and he says, oh foolish ones, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary? Same word. Same word that Paul uses in Acts 17.3. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then Luke says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Here's the wonder of the gospel that's proclaimed through the ages by Jesus, by Paul in Thessalonica, and by God's grace in this church right here, right now, this afternoon. It's not only that Jesus, the Son of God, could suffer and die and rise again, but that he had to, that it was necessary, and that his suffering and his resurrection make it possible for him to be the Savior of the world. Why was it necessary for Christ to suffer and rise again? five rapid fire things that I think are hopefully rooted in this text. Why was it necessary? Because the scriptures proclaimed it. The scriptures said it was gonna happen. Isaiah 53, Psalm 2, Psalm 110, all speak of the fact that Jesus had to suffer. And the scriptures, even as Jesus himself said, cannot be broken. Why was it necessary? Because the scriptures proclaimed it. Why was it necessary? Because God is just and righteous and God has to deal with sin and sin must be punished. Why was it necessary? Because God is merciful and gracious. That's part of his character. Right alongside is justice and mercy. There was no other way for God to be just and righteous and for God to be merciful and gracious and forgive us and make us just and righteous than for Christ to suffer and to die. Why was it necessary for Christ to suffer? Because the scriptures proclaimed it, because God is just, because God is merciful, because we need a high priest. 
because we need a mediator. We need an advocate. We need someone who can relate to our pain and suffering. I need Jesus to suffer for my sins, but I need him to suffer so that when I suffer, I can pray to him and know that he feels the feeling of my weakness. And finally, why does he need to suffer and rise again? Because if we're going to get to be, if we're going to get to be with the Father forever, we're going to need a new body. We need a new body. We need to be resurrected, and the only way we can be resurrected is because He was resurrected. He is the first fruits from the dead, and His resurrection means that we all too will rise. He had to. It was necessary for Jesus to suffer and rise again. It had to happen. And yet, can we also just hold that for a minute and say this? It wasn't something that he did against his will. It wasn't something that he was forced into. There was real suffering in the work of Christ, and the tears and the agony of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane tell us that his suffering was not just physical, but the cries in the Garden tell us that there was there was also, there was no other way. There was no other way for him to do it. And if there was another way, he says he would have taken it. If, there was, if the cup of God's judgment could have passed him by, he would have let it pass him by. He says that. If there's another way, Father, show it to me. But there was no other way. And so Jesus willingly pays the penalty. He willingly drinks the cup of God's wrath for our sin because that's what was necessary for our salvation and for his glorification. As I think about that and think about this rationality, the scriptures show us that it was necessary. The character of God show us that it was necessary. Jesus had to die, and yet he also willingly did it. It's gonna take at least three weeks for Paul to explain this, I think, right? It's going to take a lifetime for us to understand it. And by God's grace, what happened on the road to Emmaus just as happened in your life and in my life if you trusted in Jesus. The Spirit opened their eyes to see it and to believe it. Luke writes that some people were persuaded. And Paul is going to later write in that same letter to the Thessalonians, he says this, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, that's this moment right here, when they heard it, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. What a miracle that happened there in that synagogue. These Jews come to faith, there were some devout Greeks, a few leading women of the town, Luke here and in his gospel loves to remind us of the many women who formed the backbone of the early church, whether they were supporting the ministry of Jesus or believing in the midst of a hostile environment. Of course, alongside this acceptance, we find rejection. Jealousy, as is often the case, was the motivation of the Jewish leaders. Uh, the men, the Jew leading men of the town, possibly fearful of losing their influence, possibly fearful of the freedom that they had being taken away by the government, they opposed Paul. I read it earlier here in the ESV. Let me read to you uh, from the message. I kind of just like the way it captures a little bit of the spirit of what was going on. This is verses four through seven. 
Some of them were won over and joined ranks with Paul and Silas, among them a great many God-fearing Greeks and a considerable, considerable number of women from the aristocracy. But the hardline Jews became furious over the conversions. Mad with jealousy, they rounded up a bunch of brawlers off the streets and soon had an ugly mob terrorizing the city as they hunted down Paul and Silas. They broke into Jason's house, thinking that Paul and Silas were there. When they couldn't find them, they collared Jason and his friends instead and dragged them before the city fathers, yelling hysterically, these people are out to destroy the world, and now they've shown up on our doorstep, attacking everything we hold dear, and Jason is hiding them, these traitors in turncoats who say Jesus is king and Caesar is nothing. It's there in those words that they use to accuse the brothers that we find the second core piece of, of Paul's teaching. Not only is Paul saying that Jesus is the Christ, but he's saying Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. If that sounds familiar, he's the Christ and he's the king, you remember that's what Peter proclaimed on the day of Pentecost, right? What's the climax of Peter's sermon? that this Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised him up and made him both Lord and Christ. This is what Paul's proclaiming, the lordship of Jesus, that Jesus who rescues our souls from sin and death, who ransoms us from evil now owns us. And it's his law of love that has the final word in our lives. To be a Christian is to be a part of God's family and to be a member of his kingdom where Jesus is king, and it's that identity that shapes us above everything else. We are children, subjects, servants of King Jesus. Now, the Jewish leaders twisted the truth of what Paul was saying, right? They twisted this into an attack on Caesar, and it was a strong attack at that. This is not a simple accusation. John Stott says that the word here has revolutionary tones. This is what he writes. In particular, Paul and Silas were charged with high treason. It's hard to exaggerate the danger to which this exposed them, for the very suggestion of treason against the emperors often proved fatal to the, excused, to the, to the accused. This is a, a high, big accusation that's being made against Paul and Silas. And so maybe as a means of God protecting their lives, this mob can't find Paul and Silas. Kind of like when Jesus, you know, they're gonna crucify him and he just walks right through the crowd. Where's Paul and Silas? They can't find him, but they find Jason. We don't know anything else about Jason except this, but can you imagine he's a new believer in Thessalonica. Maybe he was housing Paul and Silas. They were staying with him as they had stayed with Lydia and they grab Jason and they drag him in front of the authorities. This is Jason's introduction into the Christian faith. Discipleship 101, his association with Paul threatens his very life. He learned early on that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So is the gospel revolutionary in the sense that these guys are talking about? Are we trying to overthrow kings and presidents and governments? Some people have twisted the gospel into that. Um, but I think part of the message that Luke is giving here that he wants to make clear to his readers is that's not what the gospel's about. That's not what Christianity is about. It's not about um, overthrowing governments. 
Christianity is not about political revolution. It's about wholehearted submission to Jesus above all other authorities. So that's why Jesus says things like, we render to Caesar what is Caesar's, earthly things, money. Who cares about that? We give God our lives. We give God our souls. We respect, we pray for governing authorities, but King Jesus is the one that we pledge our allegiance to. He is the one that we serve fully and finally. You can look at Romans 13 and hash some of that out if you need to. We've talked about that here before. So Paul and Silas leave Thessalonica under the cover of night. They arrive in the nearby town of Berea, and in Berea they do exactly the same thing that they did in Thessalonica. They go to the synagogue, they proclaim Jesus as Lord and Christ, as King and Messiah. But here's the difference. Look at verse 11. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. This is why there's, as Trevor pointed out to me, why there are Berean churches and not Thessalonica churches. <laughs> we all see Berean Baptist church or Berean Christian church because these guys were noble because they, they listened, they received the word with eagerness. How, how were they different? I, I, I would say it in two ways. They were different because they expected God to speak through his word and through his servants. So there's this expectation piece. They received the word with all eagerness. They, they expected God to speak through his word and his servants. How else were they different? They examined the scriptures daily. So they examined what was spoken by Paul against what was revealed in the word. They examined what was spoken against what had been revealed. They're expecting to hear from God and they're examining what's, what's said against what's revealed. They, they teach us how to receive the word with meekness, how to receive the implanted word, don't they? How can we be like them? As you read the scriptures, expect God to speak. When you open the Bible, do you expect God to speak? Do you expect there to be something that's going to help you grow in your faith? When you show up on Sunday, some guy gets up there and starts talking about the Bible. Do you expect God to speak? Do you expect that the Spirit's gonna take something and help us to understand how it fits in our lives and what's true and what's right and what's real? I think when we look back in Thessalonica, now obviously I don't want, we're painting with a broad brush because Paul writes a letter to the Thessalonians and they did receive him. They received the word, but there was this group that did not. They rejected him. And there's probably a lot of pride here. There's probably a lot of jealousy. There's probably distractions. This doesn't make sense to me. And it kept them from hearing the word. So don't let jealousy or pride or distractions keep you from hearing the truth. Expect God to speak, both through his word and through the word that's proclaimed and taught. So if we're gonna be like the Bereans, we expect God to speak. And second, we examine what God has said. Specifically, as you listen to others, examine what God has said. So these guys come from out of nowhere and start talking about Jesus being the Messiah. What do the Bereans do? 
Well, they say, well, we believe that God still speaks, and so we're going to listen to you, and then what we're going to do is we're going to take up the Scriptures and say, is that what the Bible says? <laughs> of course, they didn't call it the Bible. Is that what the Torah says? Is that what the prophets were talking about? Is that what the Psalms revealed to us? Is this true? The assumption there is that God's not going to contradict his word, that what he has revealed, he's not going to change that. If you told my kids, hey, your dad said that, that he hates you and he doesn't want you to succeed in life, they'd say, that's not true. Well, how do you know it's not true? Because he tells me the exact opposite every day. <laughs> he tells me that he loves me and that he wants me to grow and, and, and succeed in life. They know that you're wrong because that's not what has been told to them before. They might doubt it. They might get a little scared. Is that what he really said? But when we know what God's word says, then we we're able to, to paint, we're able to take things in through that rubric and to understand what's true and, and what's right. So we have to be careful. We have to be careful about what people tell us, what friends say to us, what false teaching we might hear, what books we read. And might even say what we tell ourselves. Sometimes I say that about God. God hates you and doesn't want you to succeed in life. That's a lie I tell myself. Is that what the scriptures say? It's not what the scriptures say. Tell me that my father loves me. That if I ask for, uh, for a, something, he's not going to, you know, if I ask for a, a fish, he's not going to give me a scorpion. I don't remember the exact things. I, it's leaving me at this moment. But that God does love me. That, that there's truth here that, that he's revealed. Sometimes the, the dialogue that's in the back of our head is not right. It's not true. And we need to come to the scriptures and examine what God has said and say, is this, what, this is what's true. This is what's been revealed. This is what I know to be solid. Do you expect God to speak? Do you examine what God has already said, what he has revealed? These Bereans, they're noble. I love that. They're noble because of how they received the word. That's what we want to be like. Well, they received the word but the spirit of Thessalonica is pretty strong against the word, isn't it? Those that hate the word really hate it. Those that are opposed to the gospel are really opposed to it. What happens? These guys from Thessalonica, they hear that the gospel is being proclaimed in Berea, so what do they do? They go, they go down the road to oppose it. We saw this happen with Antioch and Lystra, right? They went out to Derby and they said, get these guys out of here. They do the same thing here. They go over to Berea, but my hope and, and my thought is that it's, a little, it's too little too late. These guys heard the truth of the gospel. They saw it in the scriptures, and they knew too much to turn back now. I'm sure some did. I'm sure some were deceived and taken off their guard. But if, I, if I'm reading this right about these noble Bereans, they knew what was going on, and they'd seen it in the scriptures. And once you see it, there's no turning back. They knew too much. Well, here's this lesson in contrast. Do you see it? The difference between these, these two towns and the difference between how you can receive the word. We summarize this by saying, submit to God and accept the word that he plants in your hearts. 
which is able to save you. Submit to God and accept the word that he plants in your hearts, which is able to save you. In some ways we're saying believe that that Jesus is Lord and Christ. We submit to God as king and we believe that he's the Christ, that he's able to save us. A couple final thoughts. As I look at this too, I, I think about this. We believe in an uncoerced faith. We, we believe in a faith that we're not, we, we don't grab converts and, and force people to believe in Christianity. You can't force someone to believe in Christianity, but we reason with people. We talk to them about the truth. It's an uncoerced faith. We, we believe in a reasonable faith. It's, it's, it's rational, it's not crazy. It, it's not outside of reason. Miracles are not outside of reason. Resurrection is not outside of reason in God's world. It's a reasonable faith. It's a historic faith. It's in the scriptures. It's been foretold for generations. We believe in an uncoerced, reasonable, historic, and supernatural faith. In the end, it's supernatural, and God is the only one that can change our hearts and call us to himself. And the core of this faith is that Jesus is the Christ. He's our Savior. And that Jesus is the King. He's the Lord that rules over all that we say and do. It's revealed in the Word. And I pray that that's revealed in our lives, that we live as those who have been saved from sin by the Lord Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection. And having been saved and adopted and made his own, that we live with Jesus as our king, that we let his law of love call the shots in our lives. Let's take a moment of silence and allow God's spirit to apply his word to our hearts. So take a moment of silence and I'll close this in prayer in a moment. Lord God, I pray that you would take these words and um, they feel very jumbled at this moment and like split ends out there, but I pray that you would connect them into our hearts and our minds. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our eyes to what you would have us see in this passage and in what's been said. Lord, I pray that if there's anything that's not true, if there's anything that doesn't line up with your word, that you would um, help us to see that. Lord, help us to submit to you as king. Help us submit to your word and let it grow deep in our hearts and be worked out in our lives. Help us not be people who just talk about the word and say we love the word, but that we would live it and we would live like children of King Jesus. Lord, and we come back to this wonderful truth that you are the Christ and that while you had to suffer and rise from the dead in order to bring us salvation, you also chose 
to suffer and rise from the dead. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for living and dying and rising again on our behalf. Holy Spirit, thank you for opening our eyes to see the truth. I pray that if there's anyone here who does not know the love of the Father, who does not know the the forgiveness of the Son, who doesn't know the power of the Spirit, that they would know that today through faith. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.